the Coinbase ads, we haven't really talked about this, but those that series of ads, I think, is just so good um, because it really does. It, it hits an emotional chord with at least me and clearly a bunch of other people as well. It's just like, yeah, there's I see no viable path to it's really financial freedom. You know, they talk about all these things like debt and I just feel like that's that's a narrative that's going to emerge amongst young people is crypto is a is a viable, more viable path to financial freedom than the boomer bags. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. Goldman, JP Morgan, Point72, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the homepage and use Bell20 for 20% off. I will see you in sunny London town in March. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of bell curve before we jump in quick disclaimer the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial technical tax legal or other advice you know the deal now let's jump into the episode all right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. You got Michaels one and two in Vance. Fellas, how are we doing? It's hanging out. It's been a week. Go on. Yeah, it has, baby. Busy. End of the year. I know. Yeah. Um, we got to do a predictions episode, actually. I was just thinking of that. I, yeah. I got some good ones. I got a couple yeah. up my sleeve. I do, too. I went back and listened to ours. I think we did pretty well. On the whole, actually, from last. I mean, we've oh. just always been bullish, so it's. <laughs> it's yeah, you're going to be right every once in a while. You know, do you know what actually is really fun, Vance? Um, I was talking to one of our LPs about this when we had our Fund Three announcement. We came out with, and, we, and it's on our website. Anyone can go and check it out. We came out with some 2030 predictions, and some of them are actually like already starting to come true, which is super mm. interesting. Um, so, you know, maybe we sped run 2030 as well. Let's go. We love to hear that. You know, actually, I, I was reminded of something. Remember, I like a, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, I like brought up this predictions from Goldman Sachs and it was like money market funds moving on chain. And you guys were like, actually, some of that will happen. I have a, well, I don't want to front run. Actually, I don't want to front run the predictions. Front episode, yourself. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I'm all right. All right. So um, speaking of front running, Gito, <laughs> Gito launched, <laughs> Gito launched today. Uh I'm, I, I love the, I know you guys are investors. I also have a, a bag of Gito, so I guess disclosure there, but um, you, you can go back on Bell Curve and listen to episodes that we've been doing with Lucas for the last year or so. Gigantic fan of that project. Um, and I think what I, we can talk a little bit about the, the airdrop today, but I also, I really love the business model and I'm starting to see this narrative now of Gito being Lido plus Flashbots. And I just want to do a descriptor of, why that is and why I think um, it was really smart of the Gito team to pick up on the connection between MEV and liquid staking, because I feel like that's a really smart, that's a really smart connection. Um, but in terms of the, in terms of the airdrop, I guess, just to give the, just to give the overview, you know, the token. So we're recording this, we're recording this literally 30 minutes after it went live. So it's or 45 minutes, it's 1145 now. Uh, Gito is just under, or GTO is just under uh, $2.00. Um, this was kind of an interesting airdrop because I think if you, there were a lot of farmers that got a surprise to the upside. Like if you had been holding, like staking even like a couple ETH, like a hundred dollars or something worth of, uh, Solana through Gito, 
you done pretty well. You know, by some estimates, you might have gotten five or six thousand dollars, and that's that's very different from sort of the the very civil, almost like DOS sort of airdropping that goes on on um, some of the L2s, for instance. So I think it was a very positive surprise for many of the people that were farming Gito. Um, yeah, I have no, I'm just not really savvy enough to be like, this is where I think the token price ends up shaking out or, or anything like that. I've got no idea. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I know you guys are, again, caveat investors in Gito, but what did you, what did you think about all this or? happy to get into their business model or why I think it's interesting. On on the liquid staking side, they're in the early innings of bootstrapping, you know, what we think is going to be the biggest LST in Solana. And like we can pull up like Gito.wtf or, or, or one of the analytics dashboards, but they're at about six and a half million soul. And they're running liquidity mining right now, which is kind of like, you know, if you think about what, Lido did with its tokens in the early days versus what Gito is doing with its tokens in the early days. Lido, uh, as you remember, the bridge contract, you know, there was no withdrawals. So Gito or Lido had to spit all of its inflation at a curve pool to get the LST to be one-to-one pegged. And that was a huge use of tokens. And now what Gito is doing is they're doing liquidity mining. You're going to be able to kind of earn rewards via staking uh, Gito Soul. And like, you're, you're kind of in the early innings of what we think is going to be the aggregate stake rate on Solana is about 70%. Um, and so it's it's very possible that the aggregate stake rate for the winning LST is, is higher than that on Ethereum. The inflation is also on Solana about 7% right now um, compared to like 3% of Ethereum uh, inflation roughly. So there's kind of like a number of differences between the two, but I think the comp is, is pretty clean. Um, and then I think kind of, you know, once that phase of growth is kind of uh, conquered for Gito, I think what's next is like building really robust lending markets on Solana. And the thing that kind of sucks about um, not not Solana specifically, but like a lot of chains that are, are not ETH L1 is that Maker is just like this always on. It's kind of like the Uniswap model um, where you want a stable coin at you know midnight on Christmas Eve and you need like 100 million of them. You, like, you can actually get that if you post collateral. There isn't anything that's that reliable, that cheap on any of these other chains yet. I think with the Maker Endgame, it, it will kind of make strides towards that. But I think that's kind of the next big thing um, for successful LSTs is like, how do you build that, you know, that looping dynamic of the LST? The lot of, it's, you know, a lot of the DeFi use case on existing ETH chains is that. Um, so maybe that's in the weeds, but like, that's kind of how I think about the first, you know, few innings of growth for, for what's going on. Yeah, I think maybe just to give for folks who might not be as in the weeds on Gito, just a bit of a, a history. So Gito actually started with the MEV use case. So they have a, a client, which at the current current time has about 42% uh, market share in Solana. And the way that I would consider, it's almost like the, you know, there's an analogy to, um, you know, Mevgeth, you know, so the, the origin, the, the client that Flashbots developed, which has much higher market penetration, something like it. Uh, maybe 95%. I'm not actually not, not really sure. But basically what that is very similar to Mevgeth and the original um, you know, MEV boost product from Flashbots is you're basically running an auction. So not to get too far into the weeds, but block building on Solana is different than it is on, on Ethereum. It's continuous as opposed to these discrete 12-second blocks on Ethereum, which makes Mev a little bit more challenging. So 
you know, basically the what you're trying to optimize for in Ethereum is actually extending the amount of time that you have to run this auction that goes for every single for 12 seconds. Um, and at the end, some very specialized at this point block builder will create this block that gets distributed over this marketplace that's run by Flashbots to a specific proposer. They'll sign the header, the block gets propagated. Uh, what Jito essentially has to do is slow down time um, and create these, I believe that the auction time is 200 milliseconds, where they'll run a discrete Flashbots-like auction. So that was product number one. Then I think very intelligently, they identified you know, who their customer is, is Solana validators. Well, what else, what's like a cross-selling opportunity that I could do to other Solana validators? I could sell them a liquid staking product. And the synergy in between those two products outside of just an easy cross-sell is if I'm running this auction on behalf of my validator clients, then I can actually extract a little bit of MEV and I can move up the yield that they're earning. So easy cross-sale synergy between the two products. And that's why people are saying it's this cross between Lido and Flashbots over on Ethereum. And overall, it's just a really intelligent product suite that makes an enormous amount of sense together, at least I think. One additional kind of variable that maybe more aligned with the institutions. I think one of the one of the uh, critiques that we hear is, well, you know, there's whatever it is, seventy percent stake rate on Solana, um, and one of the reasons why Lido became so popular on Ethereum is because there was that two year period of the Beacon Chain being launched, no liquidity for anyone who was a staker. If you were staking to earn the yield, you, you literally were, were kind of stuck until you had the opportunity to get liquidity with that um, um, uh, state ETH token or wrap state ETH. In the Solana instance, that's not the case. But what everyone has realized since, and one of the, the advantages of this token model is you're able to take all the things that you just said, the, the MEV um, you know, components, you're able to take the yield, you're able to take the inflation, and you're able to wrap it in a token that switches basically the taxability and the way that income is generated into a single token that accumulates value over time in the same way that wrap state ETH does. And, mm. and this is the difference between earning income every single day that you're earning some of those tokens versus capturing that in a capital gain in the form of Jito Soul. Uh, and so there may be, you know, easy onboarding, easy offboarding. There isn't the same waiting period for for staking Solana tokens natively in the protocol, but you're subject to you know unfavorable, um, you know, tax and financial implications over time. And so institutions definitely favor a wrapped token model. And so the expectation as well is that you know some of that seventy percent starts to shift over into this favorable token model too. Yeah, I, I think if you're a sole bull. Um, and I think investing in Gito has made us like m more interested in the ecosystem as a whole. And I think more specifically in DeFi, because like, if you don't have DeFi on the chain, that's kind of like the base level, pr base level primitive, what you need to have it be money. Um, and if you think about how to build an ecosystem, you know, the number one use case is, is looping LSTs. Mm. Like that is the bread and butter of what DeFi should be. On Solana, and you look at things like Blast, where they're like taking, you know, people's, you know, say they took people's soul and then they staked it in Cheeto's soul and they're creating like this sub ecosystem and, you know, it will have a token that launches on Solana. Like there's so many other cool combinatorial things that you can do once this ecosystem is real. Um, and as, as I said before, the next thing is the lending market. But if you get those two right, you really do have a shot of having DeFi. Um, and I think Maker... And especially the back end being put on the SVM is going to bring that source of liquidity closer to, to this, which is cool.
Yeah, really good points there. I think just to maybe underscore, Michael, something that you said a little while ago, the there's a path dependence, which is pretty interesting difference in between Solana and ETH. So Solana started as a proof of stake network. Ethereum started as proof of work. And, you know, as like Cosmos and Solana both have really high stake rates compared to Ethereum. Um, you know, somewhere around 80, 80 plus percent. I'm not 100% sure where they are exactly. ETH is much, much lower than that. But conversely, there's like inverse uh, adoption of liquid staking. So the liquid staking penetration for G- even with Gito and Marinator, sort of the two on Solana is, is very low as opposed to being very high on Ethereum. It's because the pain point uh, of, of being able to stake in Ethereum originally was, was very difficult. So, uh, you know, Lido stepped in to, to fill that gap. And so it's just an interesting thing to point out that Gito has a lot of room left to run, even on its just core you know, liquid staking token, I would say. Um, the the other, you know, Vance, you, you mentioned something really interesting about the DeFi ecosystem building out. And one thing that I have tried to think about a little bit and don't have great answers for is what what is the fee? You know, obviously fees are much lower on Solana. How is that going to impact market structure on DeFi? So one interesting quirk, like you can already see this sort of playing out. So Jupiter, obviously very successful as an aggregator of exchanges. Uh, that's not the case on Ethereum, right? You have Uniswap, which everyone just goes to Uniswap and like the one inches of the world are like great, but not ultimately very successful. And I would uh, I would point to gas costs is probably the reason why, right? Because you have to route one, you're just routing multiple hops and each right. one has gas. So it, it'll be interesting to see as DeFi gets built on Solana, how the market structure is different than it is in Ethereum. You're not going to have the same like you know, gas wars from like a hundred different mev bots creating like a shit ton of fees to try to ARB something. You're probably going to have like a more professional mev operator set where the margins are a bit thinner. Um, but those people are also part of the ecosystem in a strange way. It's like the bots can actually be good for you in times where they drive like network revenue, you know, to stakeholders, but we'll see. Um, the Gito people are just awesome. Like they could be building rockets or doing, you know, any, any number of crazy intellectual things, but they've just eaten glass for like the past two years. And it's, uh, it's awesome to see them kind of launch and, and have a moment. Yeah, I would tend to agree. Big, uh, big fan. Just to maybe to plug, if, if folks want to get like much more, even in the weeds, just about Gito as a, as a business model, I would recommend going back to, we did an episode with Lucas and, Xavier Megan, the CIO at Chorus One, um, where you get like a super, it's like an hour and a half long episode, just super in depth on their whole business model. We did that a couple months ago, and we can we can link it in the show notes. Well, uh, one last 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 point I have is um, just like the hesitancy of a lot of people to use things as collateral. So like a lot of how Michael and I feel about like doing things actively on chain, you know, strategies where you borrow, strategies where you farm, like you need a very agile collateral. And you need to be able to borrow against it and you need, need to be able to do different things with it, stake it, you know, swap it, just just do different things. Most tokens people will not take as collateral on lending markets. Most people, people, most tokens, people don't even really trade. And I think like if you like getting people to start using Solana for things doesn't really even matter what they are. It could be NFTs, it could be DeFi, it could be borrowing, whatever. Like that is like that's what you're trying to create. Because that is the the path to money. And I think that's like kind of like, there's going to be plurality of crypto money. Um, but the thing that's going distinct, to distinctify them is just like, do people use it for anything? Because it can't really be money if you don't. I think that's a really good point. And one thing that at least I've been thinking about recently is it feels like 
it feels like Solana at some point, I think they're doing what they should be doing in terms of their fees today, but there's probably, there are a couple holes, I think, with Solana's design. So even local fee markets, which we've talked about on this program, like they're not really in implementation today. Like there are, there are a lot of problems with how they're implemented. And, you know, I think people talk past each other on fees a lot of the time, because again, protocols are at different points in their life cycle, but it does feel like at some point in the future, Solana will have to do its version of 1559 something like that. Yeah. So, Nothing perfect, by the way. Like, no one has solved the, the scalability problem. The only people who've solved the fee problem is still ETH um, and sustainability. Uh, and that gets glossed over definitely. But like, all of these approaches have relative strengths and weaknesses or holes. Yep. I tend to agree with you. Um, all right. I, I want to talk a little bit about um, NFTs, but actually specifically, I don't know if you guys have seen what's going on on Bitcoin, these BRC20s, uh, ordinals really taking off. Um, I, I'd be curious. I, I have I have some thoughts on this, um, but I, I'd be curious. Have you guys paid attention to that market at all? I know it's, it's still a pretty small market uh, today. <laughs> <laughs> I just added this now. But uh, <laughs> wait, what is this? I just saw and added. The Did you? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, that's so funny. Um, His name yeah. was <laughs> Congratulations. We're right at, uh, we're still at free money, yay. Yeah, free money, yay. <laughs> that's that's amazing. Oh, yeah, Gito's at two bucks now. Oh, well, good for good for Gito. I, again, not a not trade or yeah. so I have no we, we haven't done much in ordinals. We we just did Babylon, which is BTC restaking. Um, but I've I've seen the uh, I've seen the BRC 20 takes, they're hot. Can I can I give you guys maybe a uh, <laughs> a hot take on Bitcoin NFTs and then you guys talk me down and tell me why it's a bad take. That's oh, your take. <laughs> Didn't you yeah. go too much into NFTs last market? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I've, I've never made money on NFTs, but I've turned uh, pretty, yeah, not financial advice, but here's, here's my general framework for NFTs. The L1 token goes up. People look for what to do with that token and they invest in art, culture, whatever. I just think that's the, the core use case for it. And Bitcoin, Bitcoin is suffering from this problem, which is there's not actually that much to do. It's still the largest pool of wealth in crypto. And despite what the sort of maxi Twitter would have you believe, these people actually do like to do things. And what I would point to as evidence for that is centralized finance or CeFi, right? You used to be able to park your Bitcoin in BlockFi and get a yield, but that all blew up. So now there's this gigantic pool of crypto native wealth and there's nothing to do with it outside of these silly NFTs. And I think you can see, like, you can look at what people are doing with ordinals. People are buying these things. And there's a bunch of uh, of Bitcoin NFT projects that are launching soon. Taproot Wizards is my personal favorite, just because I like uh, um, Eric and Udi. But yeah, I again, not financial advice, but I'm kind of looking at that being like, I bet everyone's fading that. And it makes intuitive sense to me. Why? Did, why did you see Udi's uh, comments in the block? I did. I thought I that did. Was hilarious. <laughs> this was the Luke Dash comments so, so, about so, how calling it an exploit or a vulnerability yeah, or something. He was like, "Thank you for contributing. You don't own the chain. Like, thank you for storing all of our JPEGs on your nodes at home." <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty funny. But, but I yeah. do think that's like the bull case is like, look, people were buying Ether rocks for like a million dollars last cycle. I'm with you on on whatever you're pitching. I'm with you. But I think I think the risk with Bitcoin is Luke Das Jr. He is like a Bitcoin core dev, and 
he was saying like, you know, don't worry, we're going to patch this bug and like eliminate the spam. It's kind of like a dangerous place for it, for a network to be in controlled by just like ideological people. But, you know, like we do own Bitcoin. We we've like invested in the Bitcoin ecosystem. So, you know, we're, we're also exposed to it. We're, we're rooting for taproot wizards and all those people though. That's, that's been my, you know, when people talk about building even like DeFi on Bitcoin, I think NFTs on Bitcoin make a lot of sense. DeFi, I'm less sure about. I love Babylon as a project, by the way. I think David is a, like a great founder. He makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, he's been on the pod before, but I think, um, yeah, obviously not financial advice, but I think it'd be, it's interesting. Um, we're excited to be able to do stuff with our Bitcoin. Yeah. Just I sitting agree. there right now. No yield, baby. People love yield. <laughs> they, they really love it. Um, it, it, it really is TradFi or DeFi gold. Like it just kind of sits there. It is. More use cases will be good for, for that. Hopefully. All right, everyone. We will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. We are gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers. So think TradFi macro funds, crypto native funds, big allocators, and financial institutions. So banks, payment processors, etc. All in one spot. It's very rare to get the likes of Goldman, JP Morgan, Point72, whatever, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. We're diving into the themes that they care about. So we're talking about the intersection of macro and crypto, where we are in the cycle, real world assets. So everything from stable coins to on-chain treasuries to tokenized assets. It's going to be a blast. But the other reason you really want to go is London, baby. Center of the world at one point. You got pub culture, you got fish and chips, great beer. It's going to be a blast. So because you're such great listeners to Bell Curve, there's a code BELL20 that's going to get you 20% off. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the homepage. You'll see all of our speakers and use Bell20 for 20% off. Ticket prices are going up soon. Make sure you go use that code. I will see you in sunny London town in March. I have a question for you guys, actually, maybe on a related note for for Bitcoin. Um, I, I had a conversation with someone this week who it doesn't feel like retail is really back yet. Um, like not at all. I did see some people today, you know, Coinbase moved up to like 300th on the Apple App Store, like a big jump. But 300 is still 300, baby. That's not that's not here. Um, I, I would be curious. I remember when it was either one or two any given week during 2021. That's that's when you know. For a right? year. That's for when you year. know. Yeah, for a year. <laughs> that I've, I'm already noticing people getting fatigued by like the bull, the bull run, the early stages of a bull run. I, I So maybe this is the direction you're going, Mike, and sorry to, to jump in, but I've had the same experience, uh, you know, friends or, you know, friends of friends who are not in the space. We're basically in the mindset of like, wow, you're you're still doing crypto? Interesting. Yeah. Like, oh, I didn't realize it was still happening. It's like <laughs> best, <laughs> best performing asset this year. Uh, I don't know where you've been living, but the normies are not back yet. Only only small like the the forward deployed ones are the adventurous ones, but nowhere close to real retail. I think that happens when you break the all time high. Like think about last cycle. When when it, when we broke twenty k, it was on, and and it just became a frenzy. I, I don't think you can expect that until the all time high. That was going to be my question to you guys. Like, when is it? Is it around all time high? And that to me feels like because I remember what it felt like last time when it broke the all time high. It was just like, oh shit, we are back. But I didn't really feel like it before that because maybe I just wasn't as in it <laughs> as I am. What like month right now. did we break all time high last cycle? 
I think it was December. I think it was December. 2019. Or no, yeah. oh, sorry, 2020. No, 2020, 2020. right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, but then just think about it. After that, you still had another year of price discovery. And then there was another like six months after that post all-time high where things were just kind of like consolidating. Obviously, we had structural issues six months after that with Luna Celsius and then everything else that happened. But I, to say that we're like back in the bull market from a perspective of normie realization and, you know, coming back, like that's the furthest component that we're seeing right now. I mean, I think about the timelines and it seems super rudimentary, but like we are in December 2019 times right now. Yeah. Like, we, we this just every single week that goes by, I am furthered with the point that we're we're reliving the cycle and and it's not going to look the same it's going to be different ways it's going to happen in different ways it's going to it's going to rhyme but it's not going to be the same and if you just keep your mental mind uh mental map of here is where we are in the timelines it's a pretty good barometer for what to expect yeah yeah i think about the people that are doing you know or moving the markets around it's probably crypto natives and then institutions like we have, you know, lots of LPs now kind of like reaching out again. We have people at the office this week, like people are re-energized about the space at the institutional level in a way that hasn't been the case in, you know, two years. So, yeah, I, I would also expect the cycle to be slightly different in the sense that like maybe the Coinbase app store ranking is not the most relevant thing if most of the bid is coming from people like ETFs or hedge funds. Um Right. Like it's always different. Like I was even thinking about like, what does the crash look like after this, this cycle? Um, and there, and there will be one crypto is just like prone to these things, but like, I could see it being like a traditional institution that accidentally blows up or like a staking slashing incident or like it, but it, it is tough to relive the last cycle unless there's like the same level of outright fraud and scams. And I think the whole point of the past year is making sure that doesn't happen again. I hope so too. I also think this cycle, I mean, fingers crossed, but it seems like, um, you know, with all of the moves that are happening in DC, there will be some regulations that happen this cycle. I, I don't think that we're just going to like sit and let that pass. I think stable coins is probably going to be the, the first to move fit for the 21st century bill probably needs some, you know, adjustments to it before it's ready for, for prime time. But all of those things moving in that direction are like, exogenous factors that we couldn't even have imagined in 2021 or in 2017. Uh, so, I mean, there, there's also a lot of pod, positive catalysts that could totally change this like four year structure that we've been reliving over and over again, like Groundhog Day. Uh, but yeah, to Vance's point, it's not going to be the like <clears throat> retail. And and so to take it back to NFTs, I, I think NFTs will get a bid. I think that, you know, those, that is just kind of like the natural thing, what, like you're talking about. But the, the really big thing, too, is we're going to see Bitcoin and, and probably ETH every two weeks just get a natural bid of people who are allocated, you know, one to five percent of their you know, retirement accounts or their managed accounts that every two weeks when they get their paycheck, allocate whatever that money is into those ETFs like that. That is a structural market change that we we absolutely haven't seen before. I agree with you. And I agree with you that uh, I think institutions have been, it looks like if you just look at CME volumes, it looks like around July um, is sort of when they started moving in a little bit or some of the quicker moving ones. So yeah, I, I, I still think it's 
you know, non-financial advice, I just feel like it's still pretty early. Like even one of the things that at least I pay a lot of attention to because it's relevant for our business is, you know, we primarily monetize via ads from companies that have had a really rough 18 months or so. And the cycle that I see starting to happen now is VCs are raising again. VCs raise again. Maybe that happens by like December, Jan of this year. But then that takes some amount of time to deploy out into the market. And then even then it takes a little while for people to start spending again because they need to think about marketing for the first time in, in 12 months. So like that to me is still like six months out into, into the future, I, I, would, I would guess, um, even if the market really takes off. So I don't know. I, I see these people. I see my whole feed is filled with people calling for local tops. And I will just say, that's not the type of thing you see when it is a local top, <laughs> you know, at, at tops, you see everyone saying this thing is going to go to the moon and infinity. And I still think there's a lot of healthy, I would argue it's healthy PTSD in the market. And yeah, I just kind of feel like it's early. And anyway, a lot, a lot of room to run. It's early. We have a lot of the markers of, of kind of leaving the bear as well. Like one of the classic ones was uh, in, in 2020, um, people were overwriting options on crypto because, you know, they would, they would write covered calls and, you know, they would think the crypto wouldn't go up. And some of it obviously was passive income on crypto that you hold, but like sometimes you can get into the naked realm of like writing options on crypto that you don't hold. And um, last cycle, 3AC bought all of these options. And, and I think those were like some of the legit trades that they did do, but just like, you know, cheap fall and then crypto exploded and then, you know, they, they kind of reaped the benefits. And you kind of had that same thing happen with, you know, Vol has gone way up. Um, people were selling crazy amounts of of, of options uh, throughout this year, and just like a recognition that that strategy is no longer going to fly, kind of removes a lot of the ceiling that you see on these crypto assets. Because like at a certain level, you're just not going to be able to overpower a trad five bid if you're if you're writing a lot of these calls. So that activity largely ceasing is is kind of like one of the markers that at least I have for okay. You know, it's not maybe like a bull market yet, but we're just seemingly slowly drifting higher. And and that last point, I think, is the crucial one. When you don't have as much naked uh, call writing going on, uh, it was uh, what was it? It was right before Thanksgiving, I think, when you know this whole thing kind of came to a head. Maybe it was the end of middle to end of October, um, and we we kind of had heard that there was a large option seller, call option seller for ETH in particular. And this is right when it was around 1400 and that they had these price points, these strikes at the end of October around the like 1650, 17, 1750. <clears throat> that violent move up uh, in our estimates was basically a, a covering of, of that option seller. Um, and so when you don't have, when, when you're selling all these options and you're trying to make yield and, and you know, maybe partial uh, coverage, but partial naked, uh, you're not going to have the violent moves up. And that violence, I think, is, um, you know, not having that, I think, is, is a testament of a real kind of solid institutional market as well, uh, where you don't have an unexpected, you know, 10% day or, or 15 or 20% day. Uh, maybe over the course of a week or a month, you move up 10 to 15 to 20%, but it's not going to be over the course of 24 hours. Yeah. Well, I mean, even last time, uh, what I what this reminds me of is actually like the 2020 period post, um, you know, post the massive sell off. It was this I would call it like a steady grind price action. You know, it was just like every day was just like up a little bit more. There were a couple dips, but they clearly they quickly got bought. And like, that's what I you know, my memory is like kind of looking at Bitcoin around like 15K and being like, 
oh, wow, this is the highest it's been in a long time. And then it just kind of steadily got up. And as it got closer to the all-time high, you know, people started looking at it more. And uh, that's what it sort of feels like a little bit, at least to me. And and what I would say is uh, the two things that you didn't have back then is the institutionalization and the product availability. You didn't have, you know, the CME, the ability to write or buy, you know, calls and puts. So you didn't have that violence. You also didn't really have, I mean, you had some uh, perps, but, you know, those are pretty, mu- pretty much contained um, into the Binance ecosystem or, or you know, FTX at the time. Um, but I think that that natural bid was mostly just COVID because remember that was summer 2020 people realizing, Oh wait, maybe there's a different model. People are stuck at home. They're getting free paychecks. Like that was sort of what a natural spot bid looks like in a progression and into a bull market. And then it got over its skis and and all of the above. But I, I think that that's right in that, you know, as we start to see that slow grind higher, that's the marker for the start of an interesting bull market. I agree. One thing I wanted to get your your guys' take on is I, I, I'm curious. Like, so my mental model for this has always been price sort of moves first. There's a bunch of raising money, and then on chain activity really takes off, and that has implications at least for DeFi. And w- one of the things that I saw this week that I thought was pretty interesting is synthetics. Um, they are voting to not only uh, stop their inflation, but they're actually voting to you know, considering a burn. Um, a burn mechanism, which would be be pretty pretty un unthinkable, I guess. Like a couple of years ago, I mean, that was not that was not something that I feel like was even in the cards. And you know, I know you guys are um, you know pretty positive on protocols that that have a sort of like a burn mechanism. And I'd be curious to get your thought. And I know you guys are like synthetics OGs as well, so obviously not financial advice or anything like that. But I would be curious to get your thoughts maybe on the synthetics proposal. Is this something that we're going to see much more in Ethereum moving forward? Um, yeah, I would just love to get your thoughts. I mean, uh, can't speak to what other protocols will do, but I think other protocols will look at the success found uh, amongst protocols that do have some sort of value distribution model. Um, and, and to be clear, um, there's two separate proposals. One is to stop inflation and inflation has been a mainstay within the synthetics ecosystem basically since for the last four years. Um, and, um, it has turned into what I would call terminal inflation. It started off really high to bootstrap liquidity and it slowly week by week went down over time. And then it hit this like two to two and a half percent terminal inflation. And, and that's where it's been for the last um, three or four months. And, and so really turning off inflation is just turning off that terminal inflation. And um, and so that's vote number one hasn't gone through yet. Vote number two, um, which I, I actually don't know if it's gone through, but I, I think it will, is to test out a lot of these mechanisms on base. And so to build the perps uh, model on the base ecosystem, bootstrap liquidity, um, have fees uh, partially flow to the LPs on base. Uh, fees will also partially flow to integrators who build UIs on top of the ecosystem. And then fees will also flow into this um, buyback and burn mechanism. Um, so really, it is a test of that. It's not, you know, let's flip the switch and, and um, you know, uh, steer, the, steer the ship completely to the right. Um, but it is, uh, it's a test in that direction. And this is coinciding with a ton of work that the team has done to change the token economic model, to change the the collateral model, to change the the usability and and the product suite that they have. Um, 
So this is not just happening in a vacuum. It's it's all part of the same plan. Um, but I, I think we're going to start to see, you know, the models of you know, decentralized long-term protocols who are, you know, cash flow generative looking to um, change their, their token economics to be more favorable. Um, and it, we'll see how all this works. You know, can't say whether or not it will even, uh, or, or even get uh, integrated into the main protocol. But um, these types of tests, I think, will be good canaries in the coal mine for what could happen. Yeah, like they found product market fit with perps, obviously, and, and that product is really growing and the deployment on base will even make it more so. Um, and, you know, as volatility returns, it's like the, we see the open interest growing daily, which is cool. And I think now the impetus is like, what do we do with this token, um, the, like the synthetics token? And the synthetics token is interesting in a number of regards. Most people don't know that about 60% of it is staked um, and like what asset other than base layer, you know, cryptos that are proof of stake networks are, are staked. It's like, it's kind of unheard of in a strange way. Um, but that's the collateral that backs all the trades and, you know, more collateral types and specifically like economic flowing back to the token. That's kind of like the last piece of the puzzle in, in my mind. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's going to be a huge year for DeFi perps um, with, with kind of Binance, you know, kind of fading in, in relevance a little bit. Um, there's just a huge market. One, one of, to take it all the way back, one of the predictions that we had <clears throat> in our 2030 uh, Fund 3 launch was decentralized markets uh, overtake uh, centralized markets on both spot and futures. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that'd be we, awesome if that happened. That'd be awesome, yeah. That like I feel like so much of this... this uh, this price action, as well as the bid, is just like the real work that's been done. And there's maybe not like 30 teams that have done real stuff, but like 20, I think, in DeFi at least. Um, but that's enough. You know, that that's a whole ecosystem. Yeah, I'm with you there. I Like, you know, we talked about a little bit just even what's gone on on NFT marketplaces, Blur and Tensor, but perps, you know, have to put in tremendous work. Uh, so whether that's synthetics with Kane or, you know, we just spoke to uh, Antonio over at DYDX. Yep. I mean, Antonio is a great example of a guy who's just very, he lives in the future and I, I think is a really good bellwether of um, where the industry is going. I think o- almost the risk might be that he's a little too early on some stuff, I think. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think but he's he's been doing this for like seven, like we were trading on DYDX when you were literally trading like the tokens, the like the leverage tokens. Like, you know, he's just going to be around forever and he'll figure it out. Um, yeah, I'm positive. Um, me too. Me too. Um, so, yeah, I but I agree with you, Vance. I think there's been that is the that is the cheesy thing that everyone says about bear markets. But it is true. Like, you know, if necessity is the mother of invention, you know, a lot of a lot of companies had to do layoffs. Uh, you know, you have to focus a lot more on your product, what's working, what's not. It, it leads to results. So um, hopefully that's what we'll see. Um, I guess like maybe just to, to start to wind down here, you know, one thing that we haven't talked about, I saw this chart today of like the, the percentage of stocks, uh, that, that are owned by generation and, and you look at it and it's like, here, I'll actually, I'll grab it here, but basically it's just super heavy. I mean, it's exactly what you'd expect. It's like extremely heavy boomer and then a little bit gen X and this really tiny percentage millennial. And like non-Gen Z, basically. So 
and and one of the things I was I thought was interesting is like the Coinbase ads. We haven't really talked about this, but those that series of ads I think is just so good um, because it really does it it hits an emotional chord with at least me and clearly a bunch of other people as well. It's just like yeah, there's I see no viable path to it's really financial freedom. You know, they talk about all these things like debt and. I just feel like that's that's a narrative that's going to emerge amongst young people is crypto is a is a viable more viable path to financial freedom than the boomer bags which is like I, stocks and bonds. I I, uh, I also I'll, I'll I'll summarize this article real fast but I read an article I think it was in Business Insider I sent it to Vance and a couple of our other friends um that had uh Gen X, millennial and um Gen Z yeah um, broken down by what income and what net worth they expect to be considered, you know, quote unquote wealthy. And um, Gen Z was like $130,000 and like 400 grand. Um, Gen Millennials was like $572,000 in income and like $1.7 million in net worth. And then uh, Gen X was... Um, uh, I think it was like 130 and like 1.1 million dollars. Basically, like millennials is completely out of whack with expectations of income and, and net worth. And, and I think the the you know that's the symptom of the root cause of millennials are now you know we're all millennials. It, it's at the age where people are starting to look at buying homes. People are starting to look at starting families. People are starting to put you know that foot forward in terms of you know the life progression of settling down so to say gen z is like happy go lucky they're still having fun you know just getting out of college type um and and obviously gen x is they're they're set because they bought houses 15 years ago 20 years right. ago and um you know got married 20 years ago um and it's gonna be a real issue i think for our generation where um you know you could look at any of the sociology or, or psychology studies and people are just generally way unhappier now. And, and I don't think that it's because we have less, uh, but I think it's because we want more. And that difference is leading to, you know, general unease and unhappiness, but, you know, the financial outcomes or financial realities of what everybody is staring at um, are real and impending and they're not changing. Yeah. And just to summarize this this chart, which is for those of you who are listening, the silent generation owns 17%. This is as of 2020. 17% of the stock market, baby boomers own 53%, Gen X 27, millennials, I think that's 3, 3% down there. Did you read the uh, the Galaxy Research Report on the wealth transfer this week? No. That was really good. Um, Al something Thorne wrote it. Alex Thorne. Uh, yeah, that guy. Um, but it kind of gets into this with a lens to like, where does the money go? Um, and obviously like millennials are, so the, the way it'll work kind of cyclically is, you know, this 53% of baby boomers, they will pass on their money to, uh, millennials. Like, you know, our parents, I think are all probably baby boomers. Um, and you know, that's the largest wealth transfer in, in history from an inheritance perspective. And then you have Gen X, the generation after the baby boomers, who gives their money to the Zoomers and, and Generation Alpha, which is the generation that's around right now. And so you kind of if you think about it, like from a like what what happens perspective. So by the end of this decade, uh, millennials will control five times more wealth than they did by the start of the decade. Um, and you're going to have, you know, if you think about 
if you think about crypto, it's it's a demographic phenomenon. It's more popular with young people. It's also a geographic phenomenon. Uh, it's more popular overseas. Um, there's higher adoption rates in developing countries. And so it all kind of like leads to this question of like, you know, if if you if you believe in a super cycle, like if, if you believe in that concept, like it's largely made up of like kind of generational change and generational preference shift. Um, and, you know, the Galaxy Report, it, it has all these amazing facts. You should definitely go read it. But at the end of the kind of article, the net net of everything is that, you know, if you assume all these numbers are right, uh, you know, there's going to be about 28 to $29 million of daily buying pressure from millennials uh, and, and, you know, Zoomers, but mostly millennials um, because where most of the wealth is. Um, and that's a lot of buying pressure. And so, you know, like, it's a crazy world. Like, do I think like, a million dollar per Bitcoin at some point is possible. Like if a lot of these demographic phenomenons play out and, you know, the world gets crazier and alternative store values really kind of like pick up, like that's kind of what, like, I don't think that is like out of the question in terms of, you know, the price targets we hear today are like, you know, it's going to go to hundred K from like friends and tradify people, whatever. But like, it, it feels like that's like kind of only the short term horizon that people think about. So to tie these two things together, I, I, like the wealth transfer is absolutely real. I, I read the same article. The the thing that I would say is it's not happening in the next two years. It's happening in the next 20 years. And we'll, we'll, all of that is absolutely true. But, you know, from a generational perspective, if the vast majority of wealth that that generation has is passed on through inheritance, that means that, you know, A, it's not going to be spread evenly and B, it's not going to happen all at once or, or frankly, happen evenly as well. And so, like, it, I think there's going to be, like, economic realities of, like, what's your day to day? Like, what's your job? You know, where do you live? All of that stuff that people are going to have to f- sort out and figure out. And, and that will probably drive them into more, you know, in our minds, not the case, but more esoteric things like crypto versus like the S&P 500 stock index or like, you know, treasury bills and bonds. Like they're going to look for more advantageous ways of creating wealth, which means they're going to get brought into the ecosystem. And then as they start to receive more wealth through, you know, inheritance, I think that will just double and triple down in terms of, you know, where they will be deploying that um, and how they'll be looking at financial markets. Like, like think about millennials buying small cap value stocks. It's just not going to happen. That's that's <laughs> how I feel too. That's exactly how I feel too. And actually, this I guess isn't a front run, but this is this is what I was going to say about the Goldman thing, like money market funds, all that stuff moving on chain. I think that was directionally correct. Like the equivalent of a money market fund will be built on crypto, but it's not going to be a one to one copy. It's like there will be a crypto native version of that built, and it will be like our new money market fund, not your boomer money market fund. And they're serving the same purpose. And but I I think they end up getting sort of rebuilt. And it's this gradual shift over time. And actually, just to Michael, to to just underline what you're saying about expectation, there's a great um, wait, but why, or whoever Tim Urban, his uh, his blog on this, a very simple definition of happiness is like happiness equals uh, reality minus expectations or something right. like it, that. It's what you, it, it's what you, uh, what you want over what you have. Right. Exactly. So all good stuff to note. Um, all right, guys, unfortunately gotta, gotta end it here, but this was a, a really fun one. See you next week. Later. Bye. See you. Peace.